This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, of course, we have to take your temperature on this whole latest development situation in the federal election campaign. We will be hearing from Liberal leader Justin Trudeau in the next hour. Hopefully he is expected to make some comments while he's campaigning, I believe, in Manitoba. So what does he have to say in light of all these uh, pictures popping up in the last 24 hours showing him in brownface and blackface numerous times uh, throughout his youth and in his adulthood as well, like when he was a teacher. So we want to know, have the events of the last 24 hours changed how you intend to vote in the upcoming federal election on October the 21st? Do you say, well, I'm reconsidering my vote now after all this? Do you remain decided? Like, no, I've already figured this out. I know who I'm voting for. I'm sticking with it. Or do you remain undecided? You're already, you're still unsure. You were unsure before and you still are. Those are your three choices. So go online to simisarah 980 or at CKNW to cast your vote on this. You can also email me your thoughts, simi at cknw.com and use our buzz line, 604-331-2899. We want to know how the events of the last 24 hours have impacted your vote. Are you just going to brush over it and say, no, I already know who I'm voting for and I'm already decided? Or is this changing things for you? Do you remain undecided on this as well? If the outcome of those audits did not outrage the public, did not outrage taxpayers, did not make them throw up, I will resign as Speaker. Well, there'll be a lot of questions asked of Daryl Pleckis today, won't they? Because that Auditor General's report that he talked about in that clip there so many months ago is out this morning. And yeah, there are a lot of eyebrows being raised over questionable expenses listed here. So let's break this down and talk about what it is that the Auditor General Carol Bellringer find out. By the way, she is having a press conference to talk about her results on that. Uh, It's uh, over the phone. So we will have those comments for you coming up shortly. But right now, let's talk to Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry about what is in this report. Keith, thanks so much for being here. Good to be here, Simi. Okay, so uh, the one thing I've certainly noticed here is that Daryl Plekis thought everybody would be outraged by the other expenses, but his expenses aren't exactly squeaky clean either. No, in fact, in terms of uh, an increase from year to year, uh, and first of all, the Auditor General looked at three offices, the Clerk of the Legislature, the Sergeant-at-Arms, and the Speaker's Office. And when you look at just purely expenses, the increase, the biggest increase of those three office, offices was in the Speaker's Office under Daryl Plekis's watch. Uh, you know, there's still a lot of expenses being racked up, but ironically, at least, his was the biggest growth area of the three offices when it came to expenses. And this is the first of a series of audits. This one primarily looked at travel expenses clothing and gifts Mm -hmm. and basically her basic finding here is that uh, there's either no policy in place or a policy that's in place isn't being followed adequately enough and it's open to abuse and she's basically saying you've got some some gaps to be closed here uh, going forward but uh, it's a nice little report in that she itemizes all sorts of things I'm fascinated by the fact that they actually someone actually expensed a uh, ginger chocolate bar that cost four dollars and ninety eight cents that's uh yeah. that's uh, an, uh, that was uh, a bit but much. you know there was a lot of 
a lot of cufflinks bought by these yeah. guys, and uh, like who buys cufflinks anymore? But set uh, after set of, of cufflinks, yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, and a tuxedo and uh, and uh, more than two thousand dollars worth of art uh, and prints that were going to be given out to the MLAs, according to the clerk. So uh, almost eight, more than eighteen thousand dollars worth of gifts from that office. Uh, that again, it's not clear. Well, it, according to the Auditor General Carol Bellringer, uh, the policies either are not rigid enough uh, or they're just not being followed and. Uh, I think basically, though, going forward, you're not going to see this stuff happen again. I think the people who now occupy those offices are going to be much more spendthrift uh, than their predecessors were. I can imagine that. Those were some of the same things that I was looking at here, too, where I wondered, like, how did anybody think this was okay for so long to expense this kind of stuff? Yeah, no, again, it's the, it's the culture of entitlement is yes. what it's been labeled for some time. And it's for years, the, the officers of the legislature have sort of been operating as if they're in a completely different arena when it comes to rules and such, and that they cannot be questioned. It's sort of like the, the, uh, the ultimate authority of the legislature can never be uh, questioned. And that's always been controlled by the speaker, the clerk, and the sergeant-at-arms in sort of this rarefied atmosphere. Uh, and uh, now that's, I think those days are obviously coming to an end. But again, the, the itemized list of gifts and purchases are, are kind of silly. As I say, a, a number of occasions, people buying cufflinks for, for you know, four cufflinks sets, January 3rd, 2018, four cufflinks sets, one suit, one pair of shoes, one uh, trousers, and two hats for $4,800. Like, uh, who spends that kind of money in real life? And, uh, and again, it's uh, uh, just the clothing alone was uh, quite eye-opening that uh, this was expense. $17,000, basically for cufflinks and, and clothes. That, and that is unreal. And that's over a period of like two years or something like that. So that's like yeah, a lot from, of money. Yeah, uh, from August... August 2016 to August 2018. I mean, uh, I'm not sure you need more than one set of cufflinks if, if you do at all. <laughs> but uh, they were buying it almost on a monthly basis. Yeah, I know. And I guess what struck me as well is just the the lack of any controls on this. I mean, as, as mm-hmm. the Auditor General points out, there was no travel policy for Stafford permanent officers. Yes, and so and she she draws the parallel. There is a rigid travel policy in ministries. Uh, if you're a cabinet minister or an MLA, you are subject to some pretty strict rules on your travel, both in terms of your flights and your per diems and, and such, what you can expense, what you can't expense. Uh, that didn't seem to apply uh, in this case. She actually made the observation that they would be in violation of ministry protocols here uh, when it comes to uh, to flying. You, you, you know, MLAs and cabinet ministers, I think correctly complain sometimes that they're confined to economy class on long flights and the, it, it took years for the government to change its policy that it, I think if it's a flight of more than six hours you're allowed to upgrade but uh, those policies uh, just not followed by by the three officers of the legislature and Daryl Plekis is part of this too I mean this a lot of this took place on his watch and he was he was part of the uh, on some of these trips that the Auditor General singles out as being questionable uh, whether it was to London England or Washington DC or Virginia uh, she says basically this was uh, allowed to flourish uh, and run amok without anybody blowing the whistle on this thing. Right. So what do you think is going to happen as a result, Keith? Like those policies that you talked about that are so much stricter for ministry, like government staff, will those same rules now be applied here? 
I think so, yeah. She made nine recommendations. From what I can tell, the, the Legislative Assembly has said we will follow all of them um, uh, and, and you know, take steps to close these gaps and to be more uh, rigid in applying them. And already, I think we've seen, ever since this blew up, I can tell you, uh, when this first happened, a number of us said, you know what, this has probably got a lot to do with travel because we knew that these officers spent a lot of time traveling. And sure enough, that's that's much of the, the supposed abuse here. Since then... Uh, um, I'm not sure you're going to see as much. Well, we haven't seen as much traveling as we can as we can tell mm-hmm. from the people who are doing the fill-in for the jobs. I mean, Kate Ryan Lloyd is the deputy clerk, who's now the acting clerk, and as far as I can tell, uh, she's just been here at work every day. I see her every day. Uh, same with the sergeant at arms and uh, and and such. Now, the speaker's office is interesting. Alan Mullen, who's the speaker's yeah. aide, uh, went on his own self-directed uh, travel uh, voyage odyssey across. Uh, Canada and the United States yes. ostensibly investigating security uh, situations at other state uh, houses and, and legislatures to the tune of $13,000. That hasn't been broken down yet. That's not part of this audit, as far as I can tell. And uh, we're still looking for, for some explanation from the Speaker to justify the expenses incurred on that trip. Certainly the BC Liberals on Lamsey, Mary Polak, who's the Liberal House leader, has asked some pointed questions about, you know, show us your expenses on this trip. $13,000 is again fitting the pattern we see in these other um, right. uh, you know, findings of the Auditor General when it comes to expenses. It seems though that with Daryl Plekis, like he obviously brought a lot of this uh, to the forefront, right? He showed everybody oh, yeah. what was going on but at the same time he doesn't really seem to like having his own expenses questioned does he? <laughs> No, he doesn't, and he gets quite <coughs> quite prickly and defensive if anyone challenges his own situation. He's refused to talk about Alan Mullen's trip. Um, I mean, it could be very well all explainable as far as we know, but they just won't answer any questions about it. And he gets he gets quite defensive and almost loses his temper if you question his uh, his judgment in these matters. And it's interesting you played that clip off the top that if if people don't throw yeah. up if, when they read this, um, he'll resign. I don't think we're at the vomit-inducing stage quite yet in terms of this stuff. I think it's more eyeball rolling and, and what is going on there and clean up your act rather than just some huge abuse. This is, this is I wouldn't say it's picayune, it's, but it's, it's just emblematic, I think, of, a, of a, a culture of entitlement when you buy you know a dozen sets of cufflinks and trousers and a tuxedo to the tune of thousands of dollars of taxpayers' expense when you really don't need that stuff. Right. Now this auditor, like, cause we have several reports that have looked into this issue from different ways, right? So this was mm-hmm. the looking into the policies and practices. There's still the investigation by the RCMP or the, or the police, is there not? Oh, there is. Uh, that's ongoing. That's that's overseen by the uh, special prosecutor. Those things take a life a life of their own, and they can go on forever. I mean, for for a long time. So, uh, no end in sight for that. Uh, so that's uh, still a criminal investigation underway. We don't know when that's going to end. There's also uh, underway what's called a workplace review uh, in the legislature right. to ensure everybody's uh, protected in the workplace from bullying and harassment and that type of thing. Uh, so there's a lot of balls in the air in this thing. And again, the Auditor General. This is just the first of many audits she's going to do of the Legislative Assembly. She's going to be looking at, at contracting, for example, um, you know, uh, putting out calls for services. And, and, you know, there's, just looking out my window right now, there's the landscape crew that's been here for years. There's an ongoing uh, renovation of the front of the legislature in terms of the driveway. Like, how were those contracts let? Uh, were there calls for proposal? Was it all yeah. done on the up and up? And so it's, uh, it's uh, the Assembly has 300 employees, 
and many things going on here. So it's not just travel and gifts. There's a lot of moving parts, and she's just beginning her work here, and this is just the first of many reports. All right. Well, listen for more about that. Keith, thank you. Oh, yeah. That is okay, Keith Baldry, our Global News Legislative Bureau Chief, talking about the Auditor General Carol Bellringer's report that was released about an hour or so ago, looking into the policies and procedures regarding expenses of the employees at the legislature. So- I take responsibility for my uh, decision to do that. I shouldn't have done it. I should have known better. Uh, it was something that... Uh, I didn't think was racist at the time, but now I recognize um, it was something racist to do, and I am deeply sorry. Who knew that the latest and biggest bozo eruption would come straight from the top? I sure didn't. That was not on my bingo card for this federal election campaign. So it turns out Liberal leader Justin Trudeau has really enjoyed himself in years past by putting on dark makeup and going to events and going to parties. Now, I'm not outraged by this per se, but here's how I do feel. When I see these pictures, I shake my head, mainly because of the amount of sheer stupidity that I see on display. That huge smile on his face that suggests how much he is enjoying himself and thinks that this is all hilarious and okay. This is someone who grew up surrounded by some of the smartest people in the country and somehow Unbelievably, he still thought that putting on this dark makeup on his face and dressing up was a great grand old time. Like, we can't tell you're dressed up as Aladdin already with the clothes that you're wearing in that costume? It speaks to a level of entitlement, this assumption of privilege, where the person who's doing it just figures everyone is going to find it as hilarious and amusing as he does. I've dressed up in plenty of costumes in my lifetime, and one year I remember I was Wonder Woman. Did I paint my face white? Uh, no, I did not. One year, I was Princess Leia. Coincidentally, that was the same year the brown face picture was taken of Trudeau while he was a teacher at West Point Gray Academy. Did I paint my face white that year? Um, no. Why not? Because my face is not white. Period. And I would never assume that painting my face a different color is something that other people would even find funny. Why is that funny? I mean, we don't have the same awful history associated with blackface in the United States, but I think we can all agree that painting your face another color as a costume or a joke is a bad idea. Just don't do it. You are demonstrating a singular lack of respect for people whose skin is not the same color as yours by turning it into some kind of costume that you can take on and take off at will. We can't do that. This is not a fun costume. For the rest of us, this is just the color of our skin. And as Jagmeet Singh pointed out last night, this is really about the kids who see that and think it's okay to behave like that. I was thinking, you know, there are a lot of kids out there of all different backgrounds who maybe think they can't be prime minister one day because perhaps their grades aren't good enough or they don't feel smart enough. To them, I would say, kids... Don't sell yourself short because the grinning happy man in several brown and blackface photos today really should have known better even back then. And he still became prime minister for the last four years. Whether he still will be a month from now, that is up to the rest of you. 
And that is actually what we're going to be talking about in the next little while. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau is expected to make comments about this again coming up shortly. He's going to be having a media availability in the next half hour or so. But we want to talk about some of the political fallout from this. Joining us now, Global News reporter Amanda Connolly. Amanda, thanks very much for being here. Thank you for having me. Do you get a sense of, is there a lot of damage control being done in the Liberal Party right now? Like, how worried are they about this, do you think? I think that damage control really is the, the right word for this right now. They're in crisis mode. This is a huge bombshell that came out last night, of course, because it goes right to the very heart of the Trudeau brand. That brand that you're talking about that is all about, you know, diversity and inclusion and respect for everyone. And to have something like this come out that uh, casts doubt on the sincerity of all of that really is damaging in a time when they need, they are trying very hard to court um, a range of voters, particularly youth voters right now, who need to come out, who need to vote for the Liberals if they want to be re-elected. Um, and of course, we know that you know, we see a lot of youth activism, a lot of youth engagement on things like um, equality and, and things like that. And so you really have to look at this and say, um, you know, will this have an impact on the number of, of youth and general progressive voters who feel that they can cast a ballot for Trudeau on October 21st? Right. So how did this come about? Why did, like, after all these years of prime minister for four years, liberal leader for a couple of years before that, Amanda, why now? That really is the big question. And of course, this story broke in Time magazine last night. They were crediting it to a Vancouver businessman who came forward, who, who uh, claimed to have gone to the same school, West Point Gray Academy in Vancouver that Trudeau was teaching at uh, and brought this photo to their attention. So we do not yet know exactly um, who that individual was. Uh, and that really, again, the, the timing of this really is an unanswered question in terms of um, how this wasn't found until now. Uh, certainly when you have individuals who are in this kind of a public uh, public stage, public role, you do generally tend to find out a lot about their past as they progress through that role. Um, and that certainly is one of the questions that we're looking at now. But again, it's, it's very uncertain right now as to the exact timing of this, uh, why it didn't come out you know, earlier through the, mm-hmm. uh, the mandate and things like that. Right. Okay. So they're obviously going to be talking about this again. And other party leaders have also been responding, haven't they? They have, yes. So we heard from Conservative leader Andrew Scheer as well a couple of times now. He's been saying that this is yet another uh, yet another piece of evidence that Justin Trudeau is not fit to govern. Uh, and particularly, we, we heard from him today as well saying that um, because Justin Trudeau had said in his press conference last night that there were uh, there was one other case where this had happened, so roughly a total of two uh, times that he had done this. Uh, and, of course, we learned this morning when Global News exclusively was able to report that there is, in fact, a third case here. We had exclusive video um, of a third incident in which uh, Mr. Trudeau was appearing to be dressed in, in dark-colored makeup on his skin. Uh, and so Shear is saying that that casts doubt on whether he's telling the truth about any of this. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, of course, the NDP leader as well, saying this is extremely hurtful to Canadians who... Uh, come from diverse backgrounds who are seeing this kind of thing coming from the the individual who leads our country. And, and of course, the, the risk there, he, he was suggesting, is that this becomes normalized, that it becomes an acceptable form of behavior when, of course, it's not. Right. Okay. Do you think this, this changes the election campaign at this point, Amanda? It's certainly changing everything right now. We saw the Liberals basically cancel their schedule for the day today. Um, everything on the itinerary was essentially wiped off. Uh, Trudeau is set to hold a media availability just moments from now, of course, and we're expecting to hear a little bit more uh, potentially detail about this latest revelation at that. But right now, it certainly has knocked the Liberals off message. And the, the risk here is that in a campaign as short as this, 
every single day matters. And any day that you're not talking about your agenda and your policies is a day that Canadians aren't hearing what you want to, what you want to do for them. That's so true. Amanda, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's Amanda Connolly, our global news reporter, uh, covering this story uh, from the campaign trail as well in Ottawa. All right, we're talking about what's going on out there today. You know, the federal election campaign started out kind of quiet. And we, I remember when we were talking about, so what are we going to be doing with the election campaign? Well, we thought, well, if something comes up, then we'll cover it. Otherwise, we're not going to be chasing everybody every day to talk about what they promise and all that kind of stuff. Well, here we are. Something really did happen. And we are talking about it because it is the big story. And, you know, and I know a lot of people out there are kind of rolling their eyes and going, oh, it's the Americanization of the Canadian media. Uh, no, this is an international story. It is, it is on every single, every website I went to yesterday evening, whether it was The Guardian, whether it was The New York Times, whether it was the BBC, whether it was the Daily Mail, this was the top story. The New York Post, this was the top story. You name it. Every single media outlet that I went to last night is covering uh, this Justin Trudeau situation where he finds himself wearing brown face and black face in old pictures to the point where he said he doesn't even remember how many times he did it. He got asked that repeatedly at this press conference where he's still talking, uh, where he was asked, listen, how many of these pictures or situations are there? And he said he didn't want to say because he said one of the pictures that came up last night, he didn't even remember that one. So... Who knows what else is out there at that point? So let's just walk through some of the things just to sum up kind of what we heard from him uh, today. He said it simply, he said, don't call it makeup, call it what it was. So exactly how many times have you darkened your skin with makeup in an act that you have yourself described as racist? Uh, I uh, shared the uh, moments that I recollected, uh, but I recognize that uh, it is something absolutely unacceptable to do. Uh, and yeah, I, I appreciate calling it makeup, but it was blackface, uh, and that is just not right. It is something that uh, people who live with the kind of discrimination uh, that far too many people do because of the color of their skin, uh, or their history, or their origins, or their language, or their religion, uh, face on a regular basis, and uh, I didn't see that from the layers of privilege that I have. Uh, And for that, I am deeply sorry, and I apologize. So he went on, made many more comments. Also, we want to ask you, though, in light of all of this, in light of what has happened in the last 24 hours, has any of this changed how you intend to vote in the election on October the 21st? Are you reconsidering your vote? Do you remain decided that you've already figured this out, you're good? Or do you remain undecided that you're still unsure? Well, check out our hot question of the day. You'll find it at at CKNW or at SimiSarah980 on Twitter. You can email me your thoughts on that as well, Simi at CKNW.com. Let's break down uh, what has been going on this morning with the help of our next guest, Abigail Beeman, who's the Global National Ottawa Correspondent. Abigail, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. What did you think of what you heard from the Liberal leader there? Well, we were all uh, waiting to see. I'm currently traveling with the uh, New Democrats, so we are uh, all on the bus, and everybody was just waiting to see, you know, would he double down uh, on this apology? Would he say something else? Uh, And that's what he did. He, you know, reiterated what he said earlier, but uh, surprising to me that there wasn't a 
a better answer when he was yelled at multiple times. Are we talking more than three times, more mm-hmm. than three times, which is something that you that you referred to. Uh, he did then, that, so that was the first time he, he just ignored that sort of yelled question. He was then asked again uh, for the specifics of how many times this has happened. And he said, I'm wary of being definitive about it uh, because the recent pictures, as you mentioned, that had come out, he had not remembered them. Uh, so, so interesting to hear that he's not... Uh, putting a number on it. And as you say, that just leaves this question in the air hanging of are, are more things going to going to come out? Uh, and what is the next uh, step here? Right. How have the other campaigns been reacting? You said you're with the NDP campaign. What is the feeling there today? That's right. Well, so last night we heard a very emotional statement from NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. He, his voice cracked. He became quite emotional when he said that he was thinking about all of the especially young people affected by racism who can't necessarily fight back or, or speak out. Uh, and he wanted to send a clear message for them. Uh, don't give up on Canada. So it was a it was a very raw and genuine moment from him last night. He's since spoken, been asked about it quite a number of times. He had some uh, local or regional interviews this morning, uh, followed by uh, uh, two media availabilities. And he it was less emotional today uh, from Jagmeet Singh, but still just as affected by this. And he right. has uh, been praised for, for how he's uh, responded to this situation. Does it change anything, Abigail, do you think, for the NDP or for the Conservatives in terms of how they approach this campaign? I think it does. I think in terms of uh, Jagmeet Singh, the leadership on this, how he responded, you know, he responded right away as this was breaking. He was asked about it and he met it head on. Andrew Shearer, we had to wait a couple of hours uh, last night for a response from him. And he came out and said that, you know, this was just as racist in 2001 as it is in 2019, but it was a very short, uh, brief, brief statement. So I think it is a turning point for Jagmeet Singh. People have been impressed by uh, how he has handled this. Uh, but uh, it's still too early to tell, you know, exactly the impact this is going to have uh, on the election and, and on the campaign right. moving forward. You expect, though, as you said, he will talk more about this today. Uh, Mr. Singh? Yes. Uh, so so not anymore today. We, we did hear from him several times this morning on this. We're not expecting to hear more from him today. But, of course, on the campaign, things move pretty right. quickly. And whether, you know, there's a decision uh, in light of, of uh, Justin Trudeau's recent comments to, to say something else that, that could change. Right. OK, so then moving forward, have you noticed any changes on the campaign trail? We've also heard over the last week or so, Abigail, that people were saying, oh, you know, the NDP doing better than they thought they were going to. How has that feeling translated sort of within the campaign? Right. So you really see it in terms of how Jagmeet Singh is able to connect with people. So and I'm talking completely outside of, mm-hmm. of this Trudeau issue. When he is face-to-face with voters, he performs very strongly. Uh, we've now seen him do that at a couple of town halls. Uh, he is very warm uh, with the crowd. It, you know, it almost reminds me of when we saw Trudeau come out in, in 2015 and how he engaged with town halls uh, and was, uh, was applauded for how he was able to interact with people and be very natural. And that's the tough thing when you're a politician under the spotlight all the time. So how do you, how do you make it feel natural? He has been able to do that. And I think it resonates. I think the issue so far uh, with the NDP and this, again, outside of um, this issue that's currently unfolding is there ha- just hasn't been that much exposure to voters. So a lot of events have been quite small. I wrote an analysis piece about how they 
didn't really maximize their time in Quebec, Quebec being so critical uh, to Singh's campaign, to the future of the NDP. Uh, so there has been, you know, a lack of exposure to voters, but he does very well when he's interacting with people uh, in a very natural, genuine way. All right, we'll have to wait and see what happens. Abigail, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That is Abigail Beeman, who's the Global National Ottawa Correspondent. She, in this campaign, is right now covering the NDP uh, and their and the party and, and how they are uh, behaving and what they're doing during this uh, election campaign. So the place where you work, they probably have a policy when it comes to business expenses, right? Travel policy, meal reimbursement. There must be something that you understand how things work there. And I'm guessing, for the most part, it's probably fairly strict. Well, apparently that was not the case for a very long time at the legislature. And I'm not talking about the elected officials here in BC, because the rules about MLAs and and people in government and all that and how they spend money, yes, those rules are very well set out and, and, and regulated. We're talking about the people who work at the legislature, the clerk, the sergeant at arms, people who run the place. Turns out, there really wasn't very much of a policy when it came to their business and travel expenses on the job. And boy, are we learning that out today with the report from the BC Auditor General, Carol Bellringer. Travel expenses that were made with no supported purpose of travel. It's because there was no specific travel policy. Purchases made without proper approvals. And we're talking tens of thousands of dollars of purchases. These are just some of the issues that Carol Bellringer found with the expenses at the legislature. So we're going to be speaking in a moment with Vancouver Sun columnist Vaughn Palmer about this. And he actually, in all of this, found a discrepancy in the reporting on the expenses of the sergeant at arms and the clerk compared to the expenses of the speaker. Here is a clip from the press conference that they had this morning. Good morning, Auditor General. Good morning, Bun. I got two questions for you. The first one is on page 22, bottom of the page, Office of the Speaker. Uh, travel expenses go from $19,000 to $60,000, three-fold increase. Do you know why uh, the travel spending went up three times under Daryl Plekis? Um, I, I'm, I'm realizing we have not put that answer in this report. I, I can't, even if I knew right this right off the top of my head, I couldn't answer it to you directly. I'd have to do it through the through the Legislative Management Committee. Well, the number is from your report, right? No, no, absolutely. It's just I'm I'm getting a, a little bit. I'm I'm looking around the room to see if there's a way that I can answer your question without going outside of what we've reported in this in this actual document. Um, there's no particular reason that is that is standing out that is is in here. Um, I'm gonna you know what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna mute the phone just for two seconds. Sure. So Vaughn Vaughn, it is fair to say it is it is uh, directly related to an increased volume, increase increased number of, of travel um, uh, there there's more travel in that period. Okay. From your answer to me and your hesitation, do I assume that you have provided Lampsey with details on the $60,000 in spending? You've just simply not shared that detail with the public yet? Um, no, not, no, not specifically. No, I, I mean, that was my hesitation is, is you know, quite um, uh, 
straightforward in that I'm just not allowed to speak to, to findings publicly unless I've reported them through through the assembly first. Why, why wouldn't uh, a 300% increase in one year in travel expenses, why would that not have drawn your attention and more comment? I don't really have an answer to that. Um, if the assembly, if the if Lamsey wants to discuss it, we'll discuss it with them. But it was, there was no particular reason for that, Vaughn. It wasn't. Uh, there's there's quite a few things in here that are that are. But this but this whole thing was launched by Daryl Plekis as a whistleblower, and you've just told us that under his watch, spending went from twenty thousand to sixty thousand. Right. So I'm I'm surprised that you wouldn't have drawn more attention to that number. Well, it's included in the report, and, um, yeah, I really don't have more to That is Auditor General Carol Bellringer in a discussion with Vancouver Sons Vaughn Palmer this morning about some of the expenses that were listed in her report, uh, this report that came out this morning in regards to expenses at the legislature. So let me just give you the exact details of it. What Vaughn was talking about, how the Office of the Speaker, the travel expenses reported, incurred by staff there over a period of time. 2016 and 17, it was $21,352. 2017, 2018, $19,188. 2018-19, $60,947. And what he was trying to figure out there, why? That's a huge change. What happened? Let's talk to Vaughn Palmer for more on this now. He joins us. Hi, Vaughn. Uh, hi, Sammy. Are you surprised? That- I absolutely noticed that when I looked at that, too, and I thought, what changed in that time period? Yeah, well, you can read this report in depth as many times as you want. You won't find out an explanation. The number's there, and Carol Belling is right about that. There's no breakdown on what the $60,000 was spent on or why it went from $20,000 to 60000 And considering that you know, Daryl Plekis turned himself into a hero in this province by blowing the whistle, which needed to be done on the clerk of the legislature. And the clerk's now gone. Um, I'm just surprised there's no explanation in the report for this. She does tell us that the speaker's travel is uh, expected to follow the same rules for travel that are outlined for MLAs, there's no indication if they do, and there's no breakdown on how the money was spent. Right, because in that 2016-17, that would have been the previous speaker. Is that right? Yep, that would be Linda Reed. Okay, and then 2017-18, um, though. So, yeah, okay, so the old government financial year, the cutoff date is March 31st. So 16-17 would be just up to the month before the election. And then we had, you'll remember, the Liberals desperately trying to hang on to power. They put another speaker in briefly. That didn't work. And then you got to change the government. Mm -hmm. And then Daryl Plekis left the Liberals and went to the NDP to become speaker. So uh, by then, they were into September of 2017, so a couple of months after the transition. And so Plekis is speaker for the 17-18 financial year when the spending is about 20000 It's actually 19000 And then we go into 18-19, um, so it starts April 1st, 2018, 
through to March 31st, 2019. That year is critical because that's the year when Plekis begins assembling all the evidence that he's turned over to the RCMP, mm-hmm. begins assembling all the evidence of lack of controls and travel and everything. But while he goes through that year, according to the Auditor General, spending triples for his own office, it hits $60,000, three times what it was before he took office. So that's not just for him, though, is it? It is for the travel incurred by his office. Well, yeah, but we don't know that either, right? I ah. mean, it's, it, it's, it has to be approved by the Speaker. It is presumably a lot of Speaker travel, but... You know, again, here's an interesting one. Uh, global reporter over here, Richard Zussman, did a piece over the summer on how the Speaker's chief of staff, right. Alan Mullen, was dispatched to tour governments in Canada and U.S. states to look at security measures. And Richard reported that the, that the spending was on the order of $13,000. Well, that wouldn't be included in these numbers because that took place after March 31st, 2019, and that's the cutoff for that $60,000. So on top of the $60,000, we've got some more spending um, that, you know, more questions will be asked. We'll see whether there's any answers. The Legislative Assembly's the management committee, mm-hmm. the finance arm, the audit committee is meeting this afternoon. Daryl Plekis is supposed to be talking to them, so maybe he'll provide some explanation on this. But um, the, really, I asked the questions this morning, but your guess is good as mine on how the money was spent. Right. You've been doing this for a while, Vaughn. Uh, was there anything in this report that actually surprised you that you thought, in this day and age, is this really going on? Yeah, I'm... <laughs> Even though I, you sort of suspected there was still a problem, um, I will just say that the Office of the Auditor General, John Doyle, first dared, because it took a dare, to audit the Legislative Assembly in 2007. And it was a struggle because there was a lot of resistance. And he finally, in 2011, 2012, came out with a report that said that The accounts were so bad at the Legislative Assembly, if it were a public company, it would be delisted on the stock exchange. And that was just a devastating report. And seven years later, (laughs) (laughs) Doyle's successor, who is well into her term, Carol Bellringer, is still telling us there's all kinds of problems. For some reason or another, the Legislative Assembly of British Columbia does not think it is bound by the rules and procedures and financial reporting and accounting um, that, that bind cabinet ministers and have for years, that bind every other branch of government. It, in its wisdom, exempts itself from all that. And it's those lack of controls that have given rise, I would say, to a lot of the abuses and the lack of transparency. So we knew there was a problem here, but it's still pretty incredible that seven years after the Auditor General's office told them to clean up their act, they still haven't completely done it. There's so much irony in what you just said there, in that the B.C. legislature doesn't think they um, that they can set their own rules and that they're different from everybody else and all these other institutions, and yet they spent so much money traveling to all these other institutions and talking about how apparently they did business there. 
Well, maybe. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, they spend a lot of money, uh, $73 million and, and 300 staff, you know, for the assembly, which is you know, sort of what you expect. And an awful lot of what we're saying is, well, there need to be controls and there needs to be reporting. But there weren't the controls. There wasn't the reporting for so long. And we now know, because we have examples like the notorious wood splitter, which is still outside my office here, um, that there was a lot of abuse. Well, it was a lack of controls. You know, uh, when the former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada looked into this, uh, Beverly McLaughlin, she said, um, you know, it's lack of controls here, folks. Someone's going to take advantage of them. And the Assembly has responded already to the uh, Auditor General's report because they get it in advance. And they've said, oh, we've, we've addressed a lot of this, and I guess they have. This isn't her last report, by the way. She is going at this in sections, so she's told us today there are three or four more reports to come. So who knows what we still don't know that they could uncover. Okay, that doesn't sound very good. Well, you know, she was asked to essentially look into all of this. And she said when she took it on in February, I'm going to put these reports out in segments. So I'm going to give you stuff that you can respond to and get going on. There's still more to come. There's a bunch of things, uh, use of uh, credit cards, uh, capital project spending, a bunch of other things still to come. She did say that in her investigations, she didn't find anything that she needed to turn over to the police. Now, as you know, the police are also investigating. There's two special right. prosecutors. There's a whole bunch of other things going on as well. But she said uh, she found a lot of things that she raised eyebrows out about a lack of controls, but it doesn't sound like she found anything that she thought was fraud. Yeah, but is, is that really, can we say that accurately? If there's no, no policy in regards no. to travel, there was no policy for them to break no. in regards to travel. No, and in addition, uh, look, there are two, as I said, there are two special prosecutors. We've right. been told very little about what they're doing, but they've been in place now for almost a year, uh, and we're still waiting to find out what they're doing. So you're right, it doesn't mean... All it means is that she didn't find a smoking gun that she passed on to the cops, but it doesn't mean there isn't th- there aren't things there that are still merit further investigation. Right. All right. I look forward to your column on this, Vaughn. Thanks, Simi. Practically writes itself. Thank you very much for that. That's Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Well, today is part of our Where We Live series. We are talking about neighborhood houses. No, not the houses of your neighbor. We're talking about these. You've probably seen them there, right? You're a neighborhood house. They're in neighborhoods all over Metro Vancouver, quite a few of them in Vancouver uh, in particular. Well, have you ever visited one? Do you know what goes on there? Do you know about the kind of work that they do? Well, joining us now to talk about that is Zara Ismail, the Executive Director of Marpole and South Vancouver Neighborhood Houses. Zara, thanks for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. What does a neighborhood house do? So neighborhood houses exist to strengthen neighborhoods, which is a really broad mandate. And the way that we do that is to work with local residents, um, local to a neighborhood, to figure out what the needs are that they're seeing, what the opportunities are that they see, and then working with them to figure out how they can lead programs and um, also find new things to do, new ways to meet other neighbors and build social connection. Um, Neighborhood houses tend to be very organic and each neighborhood house will be a little bit different based on uh, the neighborhood in which it's situated. So how is that different from, say, a community centre? 
That's a great question, actually. Um, community centers tend to be a little bit more recreation focused and they're funded by the city of Vancouver. Um, neighborhood houses are nonprofit organizations that have to fundraise and look for various ways to um, do our programming. But um, a big difference is that a lot of what we do is um, developed by neighbors and also led by neighbors. At South Van Neighborhood House, for example, we have um, Monday to Friday, pretty much all day, our front room is filled with seniors programs. And a majority of the time, it's a senior who's actually or a group of seniors who are leading and facilitating those programs. So what kind of programs? What would they come to do? For the seniors in particular, we have a wonderful intercultural wellness group where different seniors come together to um, meet their neighbor, you know, to cross the boundaries of sometimes different um, cultural groups tend to stick to themselves. And South Vancouver has 80% visible minorities and 56% newcomers. So there's lots of people from all different parts of the world who speak different languages. So the intercultural wellness group is one way that we can um, forge connection between different groups. People participate in workshops. Um, they have a lunch every Thursday. There's also some other programs are uh, Tai Chi, a weekly shindig. Um, a weekly group, shindig? A weekly shindig. Every time I <laughs> walk by, I think, I wish I could go and dance with these wonderful participants because it looks like so much fun. <laughs> and I was thinking, like, this warms my heart to hear about a story like this, to know that this is going on every day. Do you get that feeling too, Zara, sometimes oh. when you see what's happening? You're thinking, oh, I love my job. Almost every day. I'm, I'm very fortunate. Um, you know, the seniors are one aspect. And then we also do a lot of work with people who are at the early stages of their life, like the family drop-ins. We actually offer uh, the South Vancouver Food Hub at SVNH, South Vancouver Neighborhood House, every Tuesday. And we just started up a family drop-in so that the families who have children from the ages of zero to six have something fun to do when they're going in to access the food bank. And, you know, the kids get to have a circle time and a, and a snack. And you know, there's various um, youth programs as well, a lot of services for newcomers. So it's sort of um, across the board. So everybody can find something interesting, exciting, and meaningful at their local neighborhood house. And why do you think these are needed? Do we not just knock on doors and get to know each other anymore? Uh, God, uh, I don't think that that's the case anymore. And uh, the more that our housing goes vertical with people blocked off even from going from one floor of their condo to the next, it's very hard for people to get to know their neighbor these days. And um, social isolation, you know, the, there was a f report that came out from the Vancouver Foundation last year. Social isolation is one of the biggest problems in our city and in our province. So neighborhood houses are one organization uh, that are working to address that issue to make sure that people... Um, can fight the loneliness that right. pops up and, and feel like leaders in their neighborhood and have a place to belong. So do you hope just that people just drop by? Is that usually what happens? Yeah, yeah. People can drop by. They can. Um, there's a lot of information on each neighborhood house's website, you know, so people can sort of figure out what's interesting to them. A very common story is that a person will come in as um, a participant, maybe to get help through a workshop or to fill out a form or to access a childcare um, space. And by getting involved with their neighborhood house as a participant, they'll st slowly start to volunteer. They might join the board. They might actually eventually become staff and uh, leaders within the movement right. of neighborhood houses. So 
Is it so hard sometimes to get people to open up? Like they may come in, but have them sit down next to somebody with a different background, different language. I imagine language is quite a barrier. How do you overcome that? Language is a huge one. Um, we're very fortunate where where I work at South Van Neighborhood House to have a board that reflects the population quite well. It's an extremely diverse board, one of the most diverse you'll probably find in Vancouver. Um, and all of our staff are also very diverse. We hire people and engage volunteers as well who um, can communicate with various people who live in the neighborhood, which is really important. If um, the language isn't there, it shuts down that conversation right before it can begin. I can imagine. Yeah. And so they're developing friendships and can they come and do anything? Can they come play cards? Can they, or do you want them to be organized? You know, uh, it's actually very interesting. We just opened up the Marpole neighborhood house in May and Marpole is at a very, very, very organic um, new stage. And so at Marpole, we're really simply inviting people in to play cards. We actually have a bridge club meeting there once a week. Um, There's some yoga going on, but really we're trying to get to know what the people in the neighborhood want. And um, with South Vancouver, it's at the other end of the spectrum. It's been around for more than 40 years and the calendar is full. So, you know, we do encourage people to come in for a cup of tea and to hang out, but it is more um, the space is being used most of the time. So it's kind of figuring out where they can fit themselves into what's already happening. You talked about Marpole. I mean, that's a neighborhood that's really changing a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, there's there's a lot of long-term residents in Marpole and uh, then so many newcomers coming in. I believe the population is expected to double by 2040. And um, neighborhood houses actually were first implemented, first created back in England over 125 years ago when people were moving from rural England into the big cities. Right. And um, they were called settlement houses. And you know, you can kind of see something like that happening in Marpole where it's expected that so many new people will move in and the neighborhood house will be there to help people get to know each other and to feel a sense of belonging and also to make room for the new people without displacing the people who've been there for a long time. Yeah. So what do you hope the people get out of that? If they're just walking by and they see this and they stop in, what what do you hope it means to them? You know, um, visibility is very important. When there is social isolation, when people don't have a place where they feel that they can belong, it can lead to... Um, challenges with mental health, with loneliness, and then that can impact also physical health. And it also just takes away from the fabric of the communities that we want to live in. So um, our aim is to be the second neighborhood, living room, sorry, the living room for the community where people can come in, feel like they have a place where they can be a leader, uh, be a participant, be a friend, and, uh, and have a place to fit. Would you say it is mostly seniors who come to the neighborhood houses? No, we're actually, um, you know, daytime, it tends to be more seniors, but um, the family drop-ins run during the day as well. And then we're launching a preteen program um, on Thursdays at Marpole. And at South Van, the youth programs are thriving. There's a lot of programs for adults who are seeking employment or uh, working on language. And um, Boy, you, you guys know, are busy at these neighborhood houses, aren't you? Honestly, one of my biggest challenges <laughs> as the executive director of these two spaces is keeping track of everything that we do because it is so robust and I'm constantly when I walk in uh, taken aback by how much great stuff the community is doing. And where Um, do you think, like why is it that people rely now on the neighborhood house to do that? Is there something that's gone missing? Is there something that has changed over the years? You know, neighborhood houses have been around for 125 years. It's actually um, SVNH and Marple Neighborhood House are members of the Association of Neighborhood Houses of BC and we're celebrating our 125th anniversary this year which is really exciting. So we've existed for a long time, but as communities changed, 
uh, have changed over time, we've also changed. And I think one of the reasons that we are so crucial right now is because there aren't a lot of places where people can go, where it doesn't cost anything to participate, um, or things are very low cost. and, you know, at different phases of life, um, people can start to feel displaced. One thing that's very common is um, if there's a parent who's been at home with their child for a long time, now their children are, are um, in university, let's say, or, or working, they're not needed as much. And then that can lead to a sense of maybe, um, right. you know, just feeling a little bit like you don't have a purpose. Well, the neighborhood house can help to use the talents people have and help them figure out a way to shine and feel, you know, feel really good yeah. about what they're doing every day. Well, that sounds like some amazing work. Uh, Where can people find out more information? Um, The websites, if you Google any neighborhood house, I can list off a few. We have Mount Pleasant Neighborhood House, Kitsilano Neighborhood House, Gordon Neighborhood House in the West End, Frog Hollow. Um, Oh, gosh, my colleagues are are going to get mad at me. Cedar Cottage. (laughs) There's Alexandra (laughs) Neighborhood House. It's not a contest. It's okay. (laughs) Crescent (laughs) Beach. Um, And there's also Kiwasa Neighborhood House, Little Mountain Neighborhood House, Collingwood, um, North Shore. So those are the ones off the top of my head. That's a lot. In addition to South Fan and Marple. But if you just Google Neighborhood House, it'll come up on the map um, uh, nearby your place. And maybe people have seen them. Like you've probably been out walking around in your neighborhood at some point in Metro Vancouver and there's a neighborhood house and you never really thought about what they're doing. Now you know. Zara, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's Zara Ismail, the Executive Director of Marpole and South Vancouver Neighborhood Houses as part of our Where We Live series.